Good morning, gents. Good to see you on this rainy day. Looks like we're going to have the, the rainiest march in the history of Memphis, Tennessee this month. That's quite, quite a, an achievement uh, on our part. We didn't get washed away. Hey, some of you have asked about uh, Amen next year. Let me tell you what we're planning to do. Uh, I'm not retiring until uh, there's a very special day I'm going to retire on. It's called Groundhog Day uh, in February. I think it's appropriate. And, uh, and uh, I plan to teach Amen until my the last breath here. So uh, we're going to start next year and we'll get going on what we call the Catholic epistles or the general epistles. Uh, now, we've just studied First and Second Peter, some of you, in recent times. So we won't look at first and second Peter, but we look at James and first and second and third John and your favorite book in the Bible, Jude. Uh, we'll cover that. So uh, those are very important books in the Bible. We haven't covered those in Amen before. And, uh, you know, for example, first John, he says, these things I've written to you that you might know that you have eternal life. You know, John always tells you why he writes the books. The gospel, he says, uh, these things are written that you might believe in the, the Son of God and by believing you may have life in His name. And in the first John, he says, I've written these things that you might know that you have eternal life. So it's a book that shows us how we can have assurance that we belong to Him. And that's a very, very important topic. In the midst of that, of course, there are all kinds of side roads in first John. And then, of course, uh, in, in Jude, you get this tremendous warning about how we're to live in this world, you know, live as holy men in, in an unholy world. And then, of course, James, uh, some of the most important practical and ethical advice for us to be found anywhere in the Bible. It's kind of the New Testament Proverbs. So we've got a lot to cover next year. We'll have to move pretty fast, but we'll, we're going to move through those uh, Catholic epistles. And they're called Catholic because it just means they're written to the whole church, whereas in Paul's epistles, you don't have Paul one, you know, first Paul, second Paul, third Paul, uh, because his letters are labeled by the party to whom he's sending it. Uh, in the general epistles, they're labeled by the person who wrote it. And that's because it's given to a broad group of people. It's general rather than specific as in the case of the Pauline epistles. Uh, we won't charge you anything extra for that little piece of information there. Well, let's turn to, to Romans chapter 13 and we come to verse 8. We're going to look at these few chapters from 8 through the end of the chapter and we're still on the topic of love. Uh, this is so important. Paul really spends a larger part of chapters uh, 12 and 13, really 14 and 15 as well, on this topic of love. Uh, as many have said, I believe is true, the most distinctive mark of any believer is that he loves. And there's a peculiar type of love. And we'll talk about that this morning. It's not just sentimentality as the world would see it, but it's a particular type of love. That's the most distinguishing trait in the Christian man's life. This is also holy ground, as we're going to see in a few moments, because it was in a couple of these verses where St. Augustine got converted in reading these verses, and we'll see why. Um, so I've always treasured this part of the scriptures. Uh, now you'll notice that he starts off in verse 8 with the word O, O-W-E, and the reason is, if you look back at verse 7, you'll remember we studied there what he said about paying what you owe people. If you owe honor to the king, then give it. If you owe taxes, pay that. Revenue, pay that. If you owe somebody respect, 
you owe that, give that. So give whatever you owe. And he's continuing that topic of what we owe. And he's using that to, to get back to the theme of love. That let's just be sure we don't owe, owe anybody anything except good to keep loving them. So he just can't get away from the topic of love, as we'll see. And that also shows us how in uh, Romans 13, 1 through 7, when we talked about our patriotism, our relationship to the uh, civil state, that that's in the category of love. We're trying to learn how to love the state and how to love the people in it and how to love the head of state, even if he's a, a crumb like Nero. What does it mean to love your enemy who's on the throne? Well, Paul just showed us. You give him everything you owe him. So you love even your unconverted neighbor who is a rascal. You, you love even your enemy, as he taught us at the end of Romans 12. So he's showing us the exhaustive uh, and sometimes exhausting character of love. It takes everything out of you. But when you think it's taken everything out of you, you find that that's when you experience the indwelling power of the Lord working through you. You never run out of resources because you're loving with His love, not your own innate love. It's His love working through you. So you, ne you never run out and you never do get completely technically exhausted because you never e exhaust your resources in Christ. So let's look then at this, this very important presentation on love. Uh, he's going to give us some specific traits about love that are important for us this morning, beginning with verse 8. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake up from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Amen. Okay, let's look at uh, the first part of verse 8 initially. Roman number 1, love must be our only continuing debt. Love must be our only continuing debt. Now, while we're looking at this, you know the context, which is to give what you owe to every single person that you owe something. Give it up. And I think Christians, let's just start right here. If we're talking about loving each other, loving our neighbor, figure out what you owe and be sure you pay it. If your tree falls over and does damage to their driveway, you be sure you pay it. Whatever you owe, you be sure you pay it. You don't owe anybody anything except love. Now, some have wrongly took this as an, taken this as an argument against 
borrowing money or taking loans out. That's not what Paul is saying at all. That's, look, the bank wants you to owe them. They make money off of you when you owe them. So they're not talking about lo you know, loaning here in a capitalistic society. They're talking about unpaid debts. So love means that you're always straight with people. And I know there are times in your life when you've borrowed some money and you can't pay it back. That's the reason that we have bankruptcy laws. They're for that very purpose. And it, some of you here have had to use those bankruptcy laws. Those are there for a reason. You don't need to feel ashamed about them. When you legitimately run out of resources, you cannot pay back the, the, the debts that you've incurred. Our laws, I think coming from a Christian perspective, have allowed a man to get a new start and to try to negotiate those debts and eliminate them and get a new start. That's there for a reason. So if you've had to go into bankruptcy, uh, I'm not saying that you should spend the rest of your life paying off those debts. Although I know a man uh, in the previous church I served who went bankrupt and he did. He spent the rest of his life earning enough money to, to pay back he didn't have to do that, uh, even, even ethically. I don't think you have to pay back. When you legitimately go bankrupt, uh, that is to grant relief to you and your families that you can have a new start. So uh, that's not what this text is talking about. What the text is talking about is things that, that you owe someone, you have the capacity to pay them, you should pay them at, the, at cost to yourself. But he's saying there's one debt you'll never finish paying. And you just keep paying it and it never gets paid off. And that is the debt to love your neighbor. You say, really, am I in debt to my neighbor? I owe him love? Yes, indeed. That's exactly what the apostle is saying. This gets at the root, the theological root of Christian love for neighbor. You're in debt. Why are you in debt? Well, think back for just a moment to Romans chapter 1. Do you remember that when we were talking about the gospel, Paul says, I owe it to the Gentiles. Paul has a debt to the Gentiles. You say, well, he's never met these people before. He's never borrowed anything from them. How could he have a debt to them? You remember the analogy we used? We said, you know, if I asked you for $10,000, that's one thing that I owe you $10,000. But what if you give me $10,000 and you tell me to give it to him? Well, I didn't borrow it from him, but I, you gave it to me specifically to give it to him. So I owe him $10,000. That's the way Paul's talking about his debt. God gave him the gospel and he gave it to him to give it to the Gentiles and told him to go to the Gentiles. So he owes it to them because he has this enormously extravagant gift and it was designed for the Gentiles and he's to give it. So he owes it. Same thing with Christian love for your neighbor. You've been given unconditional love, brethren. You didn't earn it. You certainly don't deserve it. But God just gives you love contrary to what you deserve. And then he says, I want you to give this love away to your neighbor. So you owe it to them. Because the love you received has a great commission attached to it. And that is you receive it for yourself, but you do not receive it only for yourself. When you receive the Christian gospel, you receive Christian love, it's not just for yourself. It's for you and your neighbor. That is, a neighbor is the person whose need you see, whose need you can meet. There's your neighbor. You know, the, the Pharisees challenged Jesus. Okay, so you love your neighbor. Well, tell me, who's my neighbor? 
Because the Pharisees were always looking for someone they didn't have to love. In other words, there has to be a fence out there somewhere. If I'm going to keep the law, I want to know, I want to keep this in as tight as I can. So Lord, tell me who's my neighbor. And he told them the story about the Good Samaritan. Which was the last thing they would expect. As a matter of fact, the Samaritan was the loving person, not the Jew. That was highly offensive to begin with. But then the Samaritan loves a Jew. That's outrageous. So he says, all the boundaries you thought you wouldn't cross to love your neighbor, you cross them. So your neighbor is the one whose need you see, whose need you can meet. And Paul is saying, you owe it to him because you were the Samaritan. Or actually, you weren't the Samaritan. Jesus played the role of the Samaritan. You were the one wounded and about ready to die on the side of the street. And Jesus saved you. And so he tells us to go and do likewise. So love must be our only continuing debt. Uh, I've said, you know, before here at Second Presbyterian, over the years I've been here, people have been so kind to me. I could just never pay it back. I have some friends who are so kind, so generous, so helpful. They've done so many things for me and my family. I couldn't possibly pay it back. That's true. But the higher truth is it's not, uh, it's not because someone's done something for you that you owe them. Yes, it's true. People have done things for you. Your parents have done things for you. You could never pay them back. Uh, you know, those of you who had a healthy family, you could never pay your mother and father back for rearing you in a healthy family. There's nothing, there's no price tag adequate to compensate for that. But there's what Paul is saying is something far more profound than that. Something that transcends that. And that is you owe not because the person has done it for you, but because God has done it for you. That's the reason that you owe your neighbor. So that transcends even all the things people have done for you that you could never uh, return in kind. Now, uh, secondly, look at the latter half of verse eight. He says, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Now, this is a very important statement. Love fulfills the law. Now, once again, he's, the, the Roman congregation has a significant number of Jewish people in it. And they've been taught all their life that the way they're supposed to live a righteous life is in conformity to the Old Testament, as we would call it, and all of the rabbinical inferences that have drawn, been drawn from the Old Testament, we would now call the Talmud, and that they're obligated for all of that. And that's what it means to obey the Lord. And Paul is saying, look, let me make this really simple for you. Love fulfills the law. Now, uh, Pharisees, uh, and Sadducees, but particularly Pharisees, were always asking questions like, how do you summarize the law? What's, what, are, what are the weightier laws? What are the less? You know, they're always trying to categorize the law and spread it and, you know, put it on a spreadsheet and figure out what categories everything goes into, all this kind of stuff. And you remember when Jesus was asked that kind of a pharisaical question, he said, uh, this is it. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's the greatest commandment. And the second is likened to it. Love your neighbors yourself. Oh, that makes sense. <laughs> he just summarized it for you. Now, when you go to Exodus 20, and we studied that in years past, Exodus 20 summarizes the law for you in 10 words, 10 categories. Those are very important. The first four categories have to do with your relationship with the Lord. The second, uh, the first four, and then the second six categories have to do with your relationship with your neighbor. And there you have it. So 
the Big Ten is a wonderful summary of the 600 and so laws uh, that are uh, in the 613 laws that are in the Old Testament. So the 10 are a great summary, but Jesus summarized the summary into two. And so sometimes we talk about two tablets of the law, the first having to do with our relationship with God, the second with our, our relationship with human beings. I don't think that's what it meant to have two tablets. Uh, we won't go into it. But nonetheless, it's useful. It's a useful description. First tablet, second tablet uh, of the law. But Jesus says here, love fulfills the law. And uh, you can see that in Romans 8 that we've studied, that the power by the power of the Holy Spirit, we're enabled to fulfill the law. Not perfectly, but we're able to take a new trajectory on life and begin to walk according to the law. This is highly important because so many Christians today are really confused about the relationship between love and law and the relationship between grace and law. And some think, you know, if I just have love in my heart, I don't really need the law. Let's just get rid of the law. Paul is saying, no, let me tell you what love is. It's the fulfillment of the law. So he's not just catering to his Jewish hearers. He's teaching his Gentile hearers. Now let me tell you what the law of God in, in, in the Jewish scriptures is all about. It's all about loving God and loving your neighbor. So this is a profound statement here. And of course, we know how profound it is because we've all known people who thought they were living very righteous Christian lives and they're the last people in the world you'd ever wanted to go to the beach on a vacation with. Uh, they're just stodgy, unkind, self-righteous, judgmental people. But they think they're really righteous. And Paul is saying, let me tell you what the summary of all your righteousness is to be, that you love your neighbor. Neighbors usually recognize if you love them. So the greatest evidence of your righteousness to the world is that you're a loving person regardless of the conditions in the relationship. There's your big marker, your big banner that you wear. I got a wedding ring. I don't have a wedding ring on. What happened to it? Anyway, I normally have a wedding ring on that fourth finger. I don't know what happened to it. <laughs> hey guys, I'm in Bible study. It's safe. You know what I mean? So uh, anyway, you wear a wedding ring, you know, and everybody knows you're married. Uh, well, how are they going to know you're a Christian? And Paul's saying, this is your ring. This is your emblem. Uh, you're, a, you're a man of love. Uh, turn over in the scriptures, leave your finger in Romans 13. Go to the next book in the Bible to the 13th chapter, 1 Corinthians 13. Look at these first three verses with me. They're very familiar to you. But think about them. Paul is saying, he's talking to people who are bragging about spiritual gifts who think there's a hierarchy on the spiritual gifts that, you know, if you speak in tongues, man, that's fantastic. And if you can interpret tongues, that's fantastic. And if you can work miracles and heal people, <laughs> well, those are the people that are real Christians. And, you know, those gifts are available to you. All you have to have is faith. I mean, really, if you're a believer, you can speak in tongues. I mean, they were saying all these kinds of ridiculous things uh, in Corinth and just being so fleshly and boastful about especially the demonstrative gifts, the ones that are miraculous. And so Paul says, let me tell you what the greatest gift is. It's the gift of love to one another. It really is. So look, you, you look at the last phrase in chapter 12. He says, and I will show you, he says, but earnestly desire the higher gifts and I will show you a still more excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, 
I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. So you can speak in tongues. You have a great singing voice. Wonderful. Noisy clang. Uh, you know, noisy, what does he say here? Noisy gong, clanging cymbal. That's what it is when there's no love there. And then he goes on to say, if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. So he says, if I've got great faith, I've got so much faith I can move a mountain and change a city. I've got so much faith. And I, I know the deep mysteries of the scriptures and I'm a great preacher. Man, I can teach that Sunday school class. I can lead my small group. I can evangelize. I'm, but he said, if you don't have love, then he says, uh, look at the end of verse two. He doesn't say I'm less than I would have been. He says, I'm nothing, zero, zilch without love. So love is the sine qua non of the Christian walk. And then look at verse three. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Wow. So if I completely divest myself, give all my money to the poor, and then I'm burned as a martyr, but I don't have love. Zilch. Zero. So you can see that, that love is at the root of everything in the Christian ethic. That's the reason Paul is emphasizing it for these two chapters and applies it in the next two chapters. So love fulfills the law, no matter how righteous you think you are. If you don't love your neighbor, you are a phony. That's what Paul is saying. Now look at verses nine and 10, Roman numeral number three. And here we see another interesting twist on this reality. And that is that the law reveals love. The law reveals love. It would be tempting, wouldn't it, to say, well, now, since love is the fulfillment of the law, that would mean I don't need the law. That's a very dangerous and untrue thing to say because what Paul is saying, no, the law incorporates love. The law uh, expresses love. The law shows you how to love. Jesus was the incorporation of the law. Jesus was love, pure love. And he demonstrated the law in all of his life. They're both, it's both and. So love is the overarching virtue. The law is the handbook as to how you actually do the love. You know, if you're in love with her, you want to marry her, you think, well, I don't, you know, I don't need to read anything. Shoot, I just, I just love her. Then you discover all these things called maleness and femaleness. You thought that you knew how to love her. And you thought you could just do it intuitively. You know, you love her. It'll take care of itself. Everybody knows how to love. No, they don't. Not if you're loving a woman. You don't know how. I'm telling you, you don't know how. And you either need some very painful experience over several years, which I know from the laughter most of you have had. Yep, hello over there. I got, I got an amen, finally. Or you need to read some books or you need counseling. I mean, it's one of those three. And what you're going to discover is that you if you're loving someone of the opposite gender, you must learn to love counterintuitively. 
So you'll do some things that make no sense to you. But somehow this person receives it as love. And inside you'd have to admit, you know, I'm not really too fired up about this. Uh, and it, it doesn't really, it wouldn't make me happy if she did that for me. But somehow it's making this woman happy. I don't know. So you, you have to learn love, don't you? That's, that's called the law. It's the law of femaleness. And you're learning the laws of femaleness and there are laws. Yes, you must learn them. And if you love, yes, you have the passion. You've got the sentiment, but you need the information. You need the commandments and then you need to do them even if they're counterintuitive. Now that's what Paul's saying. He's saying, look, Love is the overarching thing. Nobody wants to have a friend who thinks he's really righteous and he doesn't love people. And it's a, he's a phony. But at the same time, the one who really has the affection of love is one who is watching carefully the rules of love because there are several of those rules that are counterintuitive to you. In your brokenness, you were born a sinner, remember? You were born without perfect intuition. You were born selfish. You were born with a personality. You were born with biases. And all that we did in training you in this world was just to throw more fuel on your biases. So where does racism come from? Well, we taught you how to do that, but you had all of it in your heart to start out with. All we had to do is throw a little fuel on the fire and you're ready to go. So all of the sins that we commit are not just cultivated in us, it's, it's in us already when we're born. So if we're gonna love, we've got some hard work to do. And the law helps us. Now, when you're, if you're not a Christian and you look at the law, you're gonna feel damned. And frankly, for anyone who's not a Christian, the law does damn you. So you run from it, you don't want anything to do with it. I understand, I did that. When I got converted at 25, then I realized, you know, the law doesn't damn me anymore because Jesus was damned in my place. So he took, he took all the violations I committed against the law onto himself and paid the price. So the law has no damning power over me anymore. Now, because of that, I come back to the law and realize the law is my friend. It's my handbook, my love handbook. Whether it's male or female, it's gonna show me how to love my neighbor. And that's what Paul is saying here. Look at, look at verses nine and 10. He says, for the commandments that you don't commit adultery, you don't murder each other. And Jesus shows us, of course, in all these commandments, it's not just your outward behavior, it's the inward attitude. The law goes straight to your heart, to your intentions, your affections, what you're thinking. And Jesus showed us that the, that the Jewish rabbis have and did externalize the law and that that was never Moses' intent, certainly not the Holy Spirit's intent. The intent was to change you from the inside out. That's what Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount. So for example, adultery, it's not just not having a physical affair with someone and then trying to dissect it and decide whether it was really an affair or not, whether this, that, or the other is, you know, Clinton gave us all the exegesis on what is a sexual relationship and, and trying to dice that all up like a Pharisee would and say, I did or I didn't have sex. It's not that. It's, it starts with your heart where you're lusting after the woman. And uh, Paul is saying here, look, you have adultery, murder, stealing, coveting. He, he mentions most of the second tablet of the law. 
and any other commandment, which covers the one he left out. And it's summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. And what is wrong? Wrong is a violation of the law of God. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Now, when he says, uh, you shall love your neighbors yourself, of course, he's quoting Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. But he's, he's saying you must love your neighbor as yourself. Now, some people in the 20th century in the West would take that verse and say, you see, the Bible's teaching you that you have to start by loving yourself. Because you can't love your neighbor properly unless you love yourself because you're supposed to love your neighbor as yourself. Only the 20th century United States of America would come up with that ex-Jesus. Neither Paul nor Moses is saying, boys, you really need to learn to love yourself. What they're saying is, you guys already know dang well how to love yourself. You've been spending your whole life loving yourself. Uh, so it's an assumption about the self-centeredness of human beings. Nobody has to be taught how to love yourself. Now, I do understand in the psychological brokenness in which we live, where people are being run down, especially the female uh, end of the spectrum, where about 70% of women in America suffer from low self-esteem. I'm not diminishing that at all. I'm just simply saying we're not to pamper ourselves. We're to understand that we intuitively do take care of moi. That's not the problem. The problem is you're not taking care of Vu, the one sitting next to you. So if you just take care of Vu as much as you do Ma, we'd be in a whole lot better shape. That's what he's saying. So as Paul says in Ephesians 5, when he's talking to husbands, he says, would you just treat your wife as you, as you treat your body? Now, there are some masochists, sadomasochists in this world, I understand. He's not, he's not talking about the extreme exceptions. He's talking about the normal human race you tend to take care of your body just fine. You know, if it's got a pain, you go to the doctor. If, it's, if you need to take a bath, most of you eventually take one. You know, and if, you, if you're hungry, you usually have no problem feeding yourself. We noticed that this morning. And, and if you need some sleep, some of you do it during sermons. I mean, you get all the sleep that you need. So we notice that you take care of your bodies just fine. Would you take care of your wife that way, Paul says? And Paul goes on to say, because nobody hates his body. Now, he's not saying mathematically there's zero people who hate their bodies. We know there are people who hate their bodies. But he's saying, generally speaking, proverbially speaking, you don't hate your own body. So if you just take care of your spouse the way you take care of your body, that'd be a good start. That's what the apostle says in Ephesians 5. That's what Paul's saying here. Love your neighbor as yourself. I mean, if you just take care of people generally the way you take care of yourself, we'd be in good shape. That's what he's saying. And that's a great reminder. That's a good standard to use. Now, of course, in... In our case as believers, we go beyond that, don't we? We don't just treat our neighbors ourselves. We love our brother the way Jesus loved us and laid down our lives for him. So that's uh, probably an intensification of this whole idea. But it's taking care of people in very practical ways. Leave your finger once again in Romans 13. Turn with me to 1 John that we'll be studying next year. And look briefly with me at 1 John chapter 3. Verse 16, and John says, of course, John is the apostle of love who taught on love probably more than anybody. He says, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our life, lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods 
and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him. How does God's love abide in him? That's a really good question. If in church somebody's in need and we have resources and we don't do anything about it, how, tell me, how does the love of God abide in us that day? And then he goes on to say this, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Not in talk, but in deed. So you can say you love someone and that's important, but it's even more important to exercise love toward that person. So here's what Paul is saying. Love is not just a sentiment. It's a reality. It's a commitment coming from a sanctified and sanctifying heart to love your neighbor as yourself. That is what love is. And there are folks here in town who will just say, you know, when we interpret the Bible, we use the hermeneutic of love. What does that mean? What it usually means is any of the verses that make me uncomfortable, I eliminate those. Uh, that, because I believe God is love. And if anything in the Bible suggests that God is not love, for example, if, if the Israelites invade Canaan, I don't have anything to say about that. There's nothing theologically significant about that because I can't see anything in the love of God when men, women, and children are being killed by the Israelites. So I just, just skip that part. Or if, if Christians think that certain people can't marry each other because they're not biblically qualified... Who are they to say? God is a God of love and he's going to treat everybody the same. You see, you see the, the reasoning. We get this all the time. I mean, I, I get it almost every week. I got it this week from another clergyman uh, that, that God is a God of love and therefore da-da-da-da-da-da and violates all these biblical truths. You get it all the time. Here's what Paul is saying. No, look. The law, the, the love is the fulfilling of the law and the law reveals to you what love really is. So you want to know what love is? Go right straight to the Bible. God is love. God is also holy. In fact, there's one description of God. It's used three times, and it's the only description. Holiness. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Nowhere in the Bible does it say, love, love, love is the Lord God Almighty. So let's just start with where the prophets and the apostles seem to start, with God's perfect holiness. And in His holiness, of course, there is wrath and justice. And the amazing thing about this God of truth and justice is that He's a God of love. And love has to be held in context with everything else we're taught about God because that is love, a holy, truthful love. And so, therefore, if I love my neighbor, I not only do not commit sexual immorality with my neighbor, but I try to plead with my neighbor not to do so himself because it's in his interest not to. That's called confrontation. It makes some people angry. Sometimes when you're rearing children, every time you've loved them and you've directed them lovingly, have they always said, thank you, Father? No, you make your children mad especially your teenagers. You make them mad all the time. Why do you bear up with that anger? Why do you not kick them out of the house or leave the house yourself? 
Why do you not chop their heads off? Why do you not just tell them they're a louse? Because you love them and you're very patient with them. And love means the law of God, truth and justice and affection and laying down your life for people. It doesn't mean sentimentality and making everybody happy all the time. Paul's real clear to show us this. He's not just pandering to his Jewish hearers. He's saying, you better believe love is rooted in the law. But love is that Christian ethic that incorporates everything in the law. Okay, let's look at Roman numeral number four, verses 11 through 14, the second half of this really. And here we see that in love, we not only cultivate our love with a thoughtful relationship to the law of God. We study the law of God because that's studying love. And we learn how to love. A lot of it's counterintuitive. And even the parts that are intuitive are difficult enough, but we have intuitive things that are hard to do for unloving people. And then we have counterintuitive things that are hard to do even for people that we love. So it's a lifetime task. So our love is rooted in our relationship to the law of God. We take the law of God very seriously. It doesn't condemn us anymore. It's our friend. We go back to the moral precepts of the scriptures and we put those into practice by the power of the Holy Spirit. But we also, in our daily ethic, Paul is going to show us in verses 11 through 14, it's in our relationship to time and eternity that we live out our ethic. Our ethic is informed by the law our ethic is also informed by the time in which we live. And here's what Paul is saying. He's saying that the last days demand the law of God, the law of love. He says, you know the time, verse 11. And it is the hour for you to wake up from your moral slumber, your sleep, your laziness, your lethargy, your indifference. Wake up. Morally, wake up. For... Salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. Now here's what he's saying. Salvation here is, he's talking about future salvation. Salvation, you know, of course, has three tenses. Uh, we were saved in the past. Certainly we were saved when God elected us, but we were saved more commonly in the scriptures when Jesus died for us on Calvary's cross. We were also saved when we came to believe. So when we were regenerate, born again, and believed in the Lord, we were saved. So we use the language in both ways. I was saved at Calvary. I was saved at 25 years of age when I put my faith in Christ. But the most common way to use salvation in the Bible is the way Paul is using it here. One day we'll be saved when Jesus Christ comes back and raises us from the grave. There's our ultimate salvation. Now all are true, but the big consummating event is at the return of Jesus Christ when, when we are saved body and soul. Our souls are saved now. Our bodies will be saved then. So he says salvation is nearer thou, now than when we first started. Real simple. The second coming of Christ is nearer to you now than when you became a Christian. That's obvious. He's saying you're getting closer all the time. And here's how he's describing it. We live in a certain era called the world. This age we live in that. It's broken. It's condemned. It's spiraling downward. It's, it's corrupt. And we're living in it. We're living in the world. But also, we have a new citizenship. Paul talks about it in Philippians chapter 3. Our citizenship is in heaven. So we belong to a, a new place as well. And we belong to eternity or to the new age. 
the age of the kingdom has invaded time and space and we're in it and it's in us. So we look like sometimes very confused people because yes, we're trying to live in the politics of our own day. We're trying to live in the economy of our own day. We're trying to live in a body that's wearing down and do the best we can with it. We're struggling like everybody else just to get along in life and survive and take our next breath. We live in this age, but we also live in the next age. The Holy Spirit has come into our lives and has united us to Jesus Christ. We're already in union with Him and we can taste, we can already, like an hors d'oeuvre, we can, we, our taste buds and our palate is being developed and we can, we can feel it, we can taste it and we long for the age which is to come. So we live in two ages. And Paul describes our present time this way. He says, now y'all know this, that you know the hour that you're living in. You're, in the, you're kind of in the dark, but it's like, he says, it's like going to Amen Bible study when it's about six o'clock in the morning and you can see that it's not three o'clock in the morning. How do you know it's not three o'clock in the morning? The street lights are still on. There's still not much traffic. How do you know it's not three o'clock? Well, because there's a little pre-dawn light that's coming in. You can almost see your way along the sidewalk. And he's saying, that's the age you're living in. Yes, it is in this world. It is dark. But the pre-dawn shafts of light are coming over the horizon and giving you some evidence that a, a new day is dawning. And he said, that's the time you're living in. So look, if you're going to live like a wise person, you don't say at six o'clock in the morning, hey, let's have a wild drunken orgy. Who's going to show up at six o'clock? Nobody. They're recovering from last night's orgy to begin with, but you don't start an orgy. As, um, I know some of you are saying, how do you know about when you start an orgy? Um, <laughs> I became a Christian at 25. That's all I'm just going to leave it at that. So when you're starting a wild party, you don't start one at six. You start it when what's ahead of you are hours of darkness. Hours of darkness. As far as you're concerned, when the party starts, all the rest of eternity is going to be dark. It's just a party time. And when do you party and do wild things? It's in the dark, he says. He says, that's not where we are. This is not 11 o'clock at night. This is at six o'clock in the morning. And he says at six o'clock in the morning, even the guy who's been to the drunken orgy, he knows he's got to get his shower, get over his hangover, get that first cup of coffee, get his clothes on and go out and walk in real life and make a living. He says, look, believers, the dawn is right ahead of us. Get yourself dressed. Stop all this foolishness of living in the night. The night's over. It's gone. Christ has brought the light to us. So let's live as men in the light. Now, this, these are the verses that converted Augustine. Verses 13 and 14. Let me tell you what he was doing. Augustine grew up, as you know, with a Christian mother. Her name was Monica. This is uh, fourth century AD. His dad was a pagan. Augustine was a very fine student. He was brilliant. He loved rhetoric. Grew up in North Africa. He goes to one of the larger towns in North Africa to study rhetoric. And he, of course, is very fluent in Latin, becomes a very, very gifted young man in Latin rhetoric. Well, he wants to go to Rome where he can study rhetoric at, it, at the seat of intellectual power. And he hears about a preacher named Ambrose who is supposed to be a spectacular preacher. 
And indeed, when it comes to pure rhetoric, Ambrose was at the top of the list. So Augustine goes to listen to Bishop Ambrose just to learn more rhetoric. Meanwhile, he takes his concubine with him. He's had, he's had his mistress now for years. He's 31 years of age. And he's once again studying Ambrose and he's getting ready to hear Ambrose again give some oration about the scriptures. Lots of seeds of the gospel have been planted in, in uh, Augustine's life through the preaching of Ambrose. He hadn't been converted yet, but it's starting to have some effect on him. While he's near the cathedral, he hears the boys' choir. And when they're singing, in the song they're singing are the words tole lege, which means take up and read. And so it's a, little, it's a little song they're singing about taking up the Bible and reading. Tole lege, tole lege. Well, for some reason that only the Holy Spirit could explain, Augustine's convicted. He takes up a Bible near him and he just does exactly what the boys' choir says. He takes it up and opens it and reads. You know where he opened? Right there. And look what he read immediately. He read, let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, which he had been doing, not in sexual immorality, which he had been doing, and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, which is what rhetoric is largely all about, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. In that text, he was converted. So you can underline that one. The Word of God, that's what converts. And Augustine saw that and realized that we were being called to a lifestyle that he, his mother had taught him, but he completely abandoned. And he realized in the simplicity of the gospel, Jesus Christ dies for us that we might live a life like Christ. It's just that simple. It's the simplicity. He, he had been studying philosophy and rhetoric and very high sounding things and the best institutions he could find. Here's the simple gospel. This is what Jesus did for us and therefore we live like him. And a big shaft of light came into his life and changed him. And he called these the transformative chapters of Romans. Romans 12 through 15. The transformative chapters because it transformed his life. Our lives are to be transformed. And how does this happen? Well, first of all, A, put off immorality. You can't follow Jesus and put on Jesus without taking off the old clothes. You're not going to get your business suit on if you don't take your party clothes off. And Paul says, take them off and leave them off and burn them. Put off the immorality and get rid of that lifestyle and everything that has to do with it. Drunken orgies, not in orgies, orgies and drunkenness. And those go together because your drinking just lowers your inhibitions and gives you internally in your crooked way of thinking justification to do things you wouldn't do if you're sober. And it gives other people permission to do things they wouldn't do if they were sober. So you've got Jesus in your heart. Why, why do you need this? And I just want to challenge you for a moment to think about your drinking habits. The Bible gives us permission freely to have a glass of wine. And I know many of us do. Nothing wrong with that. And we're not to judge one another in it. But for those of you who feel like you have to have a drink every day when you go home from work, can I just ask you, what, what's that about? I grew up in a family where my dad had to have a drink, more than one, every afternoon. He was sober all day long at work, and he comes home, and I have no dad to talk to. I don't have a sober father to talk to. What's that all about? Is that love? 
that you just remove yourself because you, you like to feel, some, I don't know what the sensation is, but it feels good to you. And you've just forgotten about everybody that's living with you. And you may think you're really cool when you're drunk. We don't. And you may think that you're a great conversationalist when you've just got a few drinks in you. We don't. We'd rather talk to someone who has the right mind. To be honest with you, one reason that I, I generally don't drink, I do when I'm with, with missionaries in Europe, uh, but, <laughs> but generally, you know, I just don't mess with the stuff because sometimes you call me at 11 o'clock at night and, you, and someone's had a heart attack and they're in the hospital and I don't want to go to the hospital and not be at my best. So I want to be at my best any time, any day, any hour that you call me. There's not an hour of the day when I'm in darkness. I want to be in the light every minute because my life and yours too is to be in service. So you don't service for eight, you don't serve for eight or nine hours a day and then you go home, hey, those are my, my hours. No, they're not. Every hour belongs to other people. You owe, you owe your neighbor all the time, 24-7. And we learn to love that. It's counterintuitive, but we learn to love it. So we enter into a life of service and you just figure out what is service and whatever that is. If it's in accordance with the law of God, that's what you do. So I want to challenge you on your, on your drinking habits. Are they really constructive? Are they really helpful? And once again, I'm not saying to be an be a almost teetotaler like me, uh, but I am saying bring every habit of yours under the rubric of the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we've got to do. Secondly, sexual immorality. We live in a day of just an ocean of sexual immorality. And they're calling it love. It's not. Look at 1 Thessalonians 4. Put those verses down. 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 3 through 8. Take a look at that a little later on. And you'll see that sexual practice outside of the marriage of a man and a woman is intense selfishness. It's the opposite of love. You're using somebody else's body and somebody else's emotions for your own gratification. It's the opposite of love. And when you really learn how to make love sexually as a husband, once again, you start reading the female textbook and you realize, oh, even your sexual practice is counterintuitive. It's not like it was when you were thinking about it when you were, you know, before you were married. No, and that is, the female sexuality is entirely different. It's counterintuitive. So you find that you have to learn to enjoy your sexual relationship with your wife in a, in a female way. And you don't get to just, in a raw way, just express all of your sexual appetites. No, I think, in fact, the discipline of marital sexuality is much more difficult than the discipline of single sexuality. Because when you're married, you're expecting to have all your appetites gratified. And you realize, no, if I'm loving, I'm not. I'm accommodating her sexuality. It's even more difficult than having no sex at all, I'm telling you, if, you, if you're really loving your neighbor. And Paul is calling us to the highest level of sexual morality. And we don't, we're not trying to just censure everybody else who disagrees with us, although there's a lot of that that goes on. We have lives in the public arena. We have to figure out how to help shape public policy in America in the 21st century, and that's not always easy. But let's be clear on one thing. Inside the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, we are going to help each other live sexually moral lives and we're not going to change the rules because it's the 21st century. And then he talks about antisocial behavior. And of course, Paul was a great rhetorician himself. And he knew what it was like to quarrel. He knew what it was like to be jealous. 
He had, he had imbibed all that. He was a great speaker long before he became a Christian. He was not like Moses who stuttered and who didn't want to talk to Pharaoh. No, Paul was ready from the beginning. He had natural gifts. He knew what it was like to quarrel. And when he became a Christian, he understood that's got to stop. We don't just, stop, we don't just start needless arguments with people. We don't unnecessarily confront people. And when we do confront people, we do it in a loving, kind, and gentle way. You just look at Paul when he's writing Philemon about slave owning. Horrible sin. And look how he treated Philemon. Like a gentleman. So yes, we've got strong arguments on strong moral issues and we, we never abandon our Christian character in making those arguments. So our social skills, if you're a converted man, you must continue to develop your social skills. Not so that you can get along better in life and advance your career and just have more friends. You develop your social skills so that you can follow in the footsteps of Jesus Christ who loved his neighbor as himself. That's what you're doing, your social skills. Then lastly, he says, put on Jesus. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. You see what he's saying? Make a definitive decision now. Put him on and burn your bridges. So you don't say to your mistress, well, you know, I'm going to need to cut this off, but give me your phone number so if I need to call you later, I can get a hold of you. And there are men who actually try to do that. I mean, I've talked with them. They've been in Amen Bible study who are having an affair and they want to break it off, but they're not real sure they want to break it off forever. And they think they can reconcile to their wife when they hadn't decided definitively to break the affair off. Now, you and I know that's crazy, unless you're one of them. You know that's crazy. What wife is going to respond to a husband who's not real sure? Well, let me ask you something. You're expecting Jesus to do the same. Put him on, take him on and make no provision for the flesh. If you have a way back to the old life, burn that bridge, get rid of it, make no provision for it. This is what converted Augustine. He realized he had to get rid of everything in his life. And after he became a Christian, his mistress came up to him sometime later. She saw him in the street and she said, Augustine, Augustine, is it you? And he said, no, it is not I. A new man who put on the Lord Jesus Christ and made no provision for the flesh. Let's pray. Father, we confess to being entangled in much sin every day of our lives. And sometimes we get really discouraged by it. And we thank you that we're not going to heaven because we were so successful morally or spiritually, but because you, Lord Jesus, were successful on our account. And we praise you and adore you and thank you. And in praising you and adoring you, we want to be like you. And so we just ask again, Lord, have mercy on us. Please help us. Help us to realize that the law is our friend and our love is to be defined by the law. And that our law-keeping is to be demonstrated in our love. And help us to be aware of the day in which we live. Living in two worlds and two ages. Help us to look for the light that is dawning even now upon us. 
that we may put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. We make our prayer in the name of the one who forsook everything for us, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is raised and seated at your right hand in glory and who promises when the day dawns to come in all of his glory and to take us unto himself. Amen.